the world should have ended 30 years ago. That didn't stop the shepherds from arriving, strange political radicals with the power to bend the world to their wills. Chaos rose up as the first shepherd, claiming superiority and demanding total obedience. Polar and his recruits, Zero, Scrap, Psykick, and Twister stopped his potential reign of terror, but that only proved what humans, or flat scans, feared. Shepherds would control the forward motion of the world. If they wanted to change something, they had the ability to do so. The United Nations formed the ARA, the Anomaly Reaction Agency. The ARA started to develop weapons specifically geared towards the shepherds. With every bang, the incursion, and maturation of new shepherds, the ARA deployed new tactics. The sentient nanotechnological virus slaughter wiped away every shepherd but Zero. Zero managed to take out the slaughter prime germ, but in the process unleashed the Pale Riders, a psycho-terrestrial race bent on subjugating Earth and breeding a super-powered new species to fight in their war sieges. The UN, thinking Zero was dead, relented. When Zero re-emerged with new powers, the ARA sent out the Crash. Crash was an ever-fluxing being made of psychic energy. Where the Crash failed in taking down Zero, now able to manipulate energy, One succeeded. One, the super-intelligent assassin, learned Zero's weakness to cold and exploited it. With Zero cryogenically held in a secret prison, it seems the threat posed by the Shepherds has abated. But what will happen when the next bang comes, or when the ARA realize their attack satellite, Brother 84, has targeted humans as the greatest threat to the planet? This is an excerpt from page 7 from the notebook found in the wreckage of Daniel Allen's car crash. The club, the meat hook hang, was chaos. The air was damp with sweat and the dance floor surged with bodies, convulsing to the throbbing, hammering bass beats of Neo Dance. He walked past a dark corner where the new youth culture was bastardizing the I Ching with facial piercings and large magnets. The pinging of lip and eyebrow rings hitting the floor was muted against the music. It was the metallic complaining of the hinges and the slam of the door behind him that announced his arrival to the empty back room. He sat down in the lotus position, legs crossed, and closed his eyes. His breathing became even and shallow as he entered the trance. His guts shivered with fear and cold. Physical reality pressed down on him like a plank of stones at a Salem witch trial. A thin sweat broke out all over his body as his arms tensed, trying to fend off the awful weight. He could feel the ethereal wall break down around him. The boundaries between dimensions were soft against his back. Gnostic Christians have a theory that the universe is a hologram created from the overlapping of two other macro-universes. In the quiet back room of the meat hook hang, the hologram was folding in on itself. He started moving in a direction that he had never even thought of before. It was like quantum origami on a cosmic level, and something had to give. The known world ripped open as he fell through the fracture and into one of the two worlds rarely seen. He fell into an alternating current of matter and antimatter, buffeted by the waves of timelessness. The Gnostic Christians believe in the hologram theory. If you extend the curves of the Pisces, you have a Venn diagram. The overlap is the prime universe, created by the meeting of Universe A and Universe B. He finds himself in Universe A, a healthy universe where the forces of chaos train its soldiers. This is where anarchists, shamans, and madmen come from. He slowly walks towards the only landmark, 
The House of Eyes is where Chaos makes its home. He sees an altar as he opens the doors of the house and kneels down. That is where he becomes charged with his mission. The thought clouds slowly lowered and ignited their electric pops and synaptic sparks in his head. An idea storm raged around him. Lightning bolts of epiphany split and surged as the voices of the first rang and pealed. In moments that stretched out into years, he learned everything he needed to know. Time in Universe A made the speed of light look slow and sticky. He was introduced to Zanguin, god of assassins, and right-hand deity of Baron Samade, Voodoo Deathaloa. He was trained to master physical and ontological warfare. As the, as the storm diminished, with cool drops of thought drying on his skin, he walked to the armory. The house's reflection, its shadow, is the Zero Church. Order is the name of the game for the conspiracy of conformity. It is a decaying universe, ready to invade and advance into the collective psyche of the hologram. Its darkness will spread like a cancer. He is not going to stop any of their preemptive strikes in the overlap. He will stop the advancement. They have already subtly touched us. The implanted microchips under our skin, parents' fear of imagined threats towards their children, and hate as an internationally recognized language were just some of the Zero Church's influences. He is the thorn in the Church's side that will poison and bring cold finality. He is freedom from thinking their thoughts. He folds the air to mind the hand of single light, the only arcane key left in the overlap that can weaken the bonds and bridge the gap between the superimposed universes and bends time and space. He walks through a door that is not a door or a jar. He walks into the Zero Church. Steel mandibles of the surgeon fish crash and chime. The peels are known to shatter spines and break faith. The razor bones click incessantly between the nothing nun's legs. The noxious ooze trickles down from their robes and leaves pockmarks on the filthy street behind them like a twisted breadcrumb trail. Everyone here is a number. They have begged and betrayed to become binary. Everything is black and white. Everything is what they say it is. You would slit your mother's throat to please the reign of terror here. They rule completely and with absolute authority. They are the strength and the weakness of the oppression. The King of Saints Falls sits accompanied by his queen, the abortion mother. The throne is made of the bones and blood from countless crib deaths. Their careful movements have taken such time that empires have risen and fallen and gods have lived and died. They have, at their fingertips, the touch of calculated entropy. They know he has arrived here and they very much look forward to his demise, whether at their hands or their followers. The Cypher Men's four-dimensional insectoid armor does not save them from his gun, screaming bullets of converted erotic thoughts. Their protective shells splinter and crack and fracture. His ammunition is round after round of old playboys with Marilyn Monroe's centerfold. He's killing them with love. The encephalic abortions wail in the rapery hall. Behind his mirrored sunglasses are eyes of cold joy. His stare is colder than cool. It is absolute zero, able to stop movement on a molecular level. The bodies are starting to stack up around him. He's coming up on overkill. He'll start questioning his already dubious morals. He wants to trip like Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper and Easy Rider. Lots of acid in a graveyard. One day, which seems like a relative forever away, he'll put down his gun and beat his proverbial sword into a plowed share. Some dark, sticky steel box in the back of his head wants to find a nice girl to settle down with in the suburbs. White picket fences, blossoming cherry trees, the whole cliché. Enough of this softness, he thinks. 
The constantly bleeding door to the throne room stands before him, surging in fleshy anguish. Made of the bodies of those that have failed before him, his mind is nothing but a razor-sharp blackness. It has to be. He will not become a warning to those after him. He knows that if he falls, they win. No one will follow in his footprints. He falls, the world does too. He shrugs that weight off his shoulders. He's not Jesus. No need to carry a cross. Not that a cross would do any good in this place anyway. Jesus was one of theirs. The door gave away with a weak scream. The undulating walls of the great hall absorbed the echo of it. The surroundings raised, lowered, and swelled as if it were breathing. The walls glistened with a sickly sheen and smelled like rotting meat and rain season. The helisects buzzed and whirred around, their razor blade wings collecting the secretions for the cipherman tanks, where they grow the zero church's workforces and army units. He walked cautiously through the hall, his steps soft and wet on the permeable floor. His breathing was slow and steady, but his heart raced in his chest like a stampede. He came to the doors that led to the sanctuary. The door was heavy-looking and made of anti-metal, a metal dense enough to pull free of nature physics and sink into other dimensions. The king and queen stand ready to reap the nightmares of his childhood and force them down his brain. They were going to wrench open his skull, tear the still vivid dreams of unabashed terror from him, reimagine them even worse, and cruelly replace them in his mind. It wouldn't kill him, but he would wish he were dead. He could feel their cold fingers reaching into his mind. He allowed it. He thought hard and pulled them in. The bodies of the king and queen followed their fingers into his psyche. They walked around his childhood, amplifying the crushing pain from the moments he lost pieces of his innocence. They wandered his adolescence and soured his every joy and tastes of love and affection. They came to his adulthood, marching on and grinding the skeletal remains of his triumphs. Somewhere outside of this place, he cried and screamed and fell to his knees, but he did not weaken. As his eyes ran with salty tears and coppery blood, he leads them deeper into himself. They come to a wooden door, laid down, the handle broke off. This is where he would keep his darkest secrets, his stickiest fantasies, and his in inexcusable urges. They dig their hands into the malleable surroundings and pull at the door. He whimpers as it yields. They descend into the cellar door of his mind, navigating the darkness like it was light. He shuts the trap door and hefts the gun to his head. The trigger gets pulled. It's like an alien abduction. The bright blast of light blinds him, taking a minute for his eyes to adjust. He's surrounded by the abstract stereotypes of extraterrestrial beings. They talked in emotional aggregates, words that don't describe things, but are things. They use all 37 letters of the alphabet. This is when he wakes up, to the future. There's a redhead with a nanotech bracelet. It hums and buzzes mechanically around her wrist, and a psychic-enhancing implant that gives her seizures that follow with the visions of sixteen distinct futures. She is holding his hand. He's been made into a video game so that no one believes what he did was real. Maybe it never was. Everything's the same as before, except the end of the world is a week away. Seven days seems like a short time when the world's weight is barreling downhill towards oblivion. Barbalith, mankind's collective unconscious placenta, is ready to die when we evolve on December 12th, 2012. It will shed itself and wither and die in the dreamscape. The number 23 is appearing more and more. 23 is the number of chaos, entropy, and death. Death, read in the tarot, is not the typical view of death, 
but the coming of change and rebirth. He thinks they have won. The forces of freedom conquered the conspiracy for control, but the truth is there never was a war. The empire is defined by the rebels and vice versa. Sometimes they are one and the same. Who is he when he did not have anything to fight for or against? He was a freedom fighter, a rebel, a murderer, a memory, and then no one. Were there revolutions before the wheel? This is an excerpt from page 76 from the notebook found in the wreckage of Daniel Allen's car crash. To you know who. I can't take it anymore. I can't live with the voices, and I can't live without you. Things drove us apart. I drove us apart. But I know with time and patience and love, we could have survived. But they won't let us. They scream and snarl and curse at me in the mirror, no matter how many pills I've taken and shots I've swallowed. Just writing this, I know I shouldn't drive, but I will. I have to see you. I have to see your face one more time. Your face, but not behind the bathroom door crying, or behind the slammed front door yelling. I don't care if this will be the last time for us. With all of the shit inside of me, all of the poisons, it'll be the last time for anything, at all for me. I hope in time you forgive me. I'll never forgive myself. It'll be too bad when you can't hear me from where I'll be in hell and you in heaven. I've written so much about us in my private writings that you would scarcely realize the scared boy you met and the emboldened man I am now. In death, I hope to know the greatest ending to the lackluster story I began decades ago with birth. I love you. Will always. Will forever. Know that as I leave you. Signed, Daniel Allen. This is an excerpt from page 77 of the notebook found in the wreckage of Daniel Allen's car crash. Hi, my name is Doug, and I'm a writer. Welcome to Mr. Wright. What you just heard were three of the bonus material pieces I wrote for a novella called Black Falls. I wrote Black Falls online, put out a piece a week. It recently wrapped up uh, the novella proper on one of our podcasts, called Black Falls. There will be more pieces. They'll pop up here and then pop up on Black Falls. But I'm not here to promote Black Falls. I'm here to tell you about writing. Here's a little bit about me. I started telling stories to my family when I was a child. Um, I've always loved creating. Um, I wanted to go and be an artist, specifically comic book. And when I realized I draw like a spastic with a crayon up his nose, I figured out that I can actually describe things better than I can draw them. So I started writing. Um, I got my degree in English with a minor in poetry, and weirdly enough, because of the whole spastic drawing thing, also a minor in graphic design. This whole podcast is going to be about, now when I say this whole podcast, I mean the whole, all of the episodes, not just this one, is going to be about how to write, how to write better, um, how to avoid some of the pitfalls, how to climb some of the mountains. So I hope you guys enjoy it. This episode specifically is about how to write an online serialized novella and some of the problems I had taking it to print. Now, like I said earlier, I did Black Falls online, a piece a week. So what I did was um, I kind of had just started with the first piece, which was the pilot episode of the Black Falls podcast, I simply just kind of built a story from there. Um, it originally started as a way to um, experiment with voices and techniques and just get some of the weird stories out of my head, and I really liked doing it. And as I got about a third through, I realized there was kind of this overreaching arc that I wanted to get to and just started working towards that. Um, 
by about the third of it, I'd started making very vague outlines, um, stray character names, um, quick character arc uh, sketches in terms of, you know, writing down where I wanted it to go, but very loosely. Um, I wanted kind of the freedom to work on it uh, with a lot of uh, freedom without a hand-in-glove situation with myself. I know that sounded weird. As I was putting these out, and I was putting them out on MySpace because of legal reasons, uh, Facebook didn't have a great blogging um, user interface at all, and I didn't want any le uh, legalities uh, cast on who had trademarked Black Falls Me or Facebook. So, basically, um, I put it out a part, uh, like I said, um, an installment a week for almost 52 weeks, a little bit over, and... When it came down to collect it and um, get it in, uh, published, which it was, um, sold out the first three print runs, I was very proud of myself, I found that the orders in which I'd put them out online didn't make any sense if you were to read it in that order as a book. So I had to go through and literally tear it apart and interesting things happened when I did that. I, I found that I had these, once again, arcs that I hadn't necessarily planned in the first third. Um, so I divided up into these huge chapters, um, one about Black Falls, one about um, a character named Jim Ellis who has um, kind of a murderous um, transformation throughout the whole of Black Falls. But it was a pain in the ass. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I drank a lot while I was doing it, um, and I'm not saying that made it more difficult but it probably didn't help. But it was very stressful having to figure out where, like some pieces just didn't fit anywhere and I ended up putting those in like another separate chapter. I think it was called um, Small Town Blues. That was kind of just this stray mashup and stories about Black Falls itself. There was Jim Ellis. There was the story of Megan Hendelman who had turned a her unrequited crush into a doll. Um, some of these, like I said, worked out very well to, to be put into print. But tearing it apart and then having to re-edit and having uh, my editor kind of just yell at me for some stuff. Because once again, the way it was written to be online was radically different from how it should have been in print. So it was very difficult. So any writers out there who put things out online that are serialized may want to keep an eye on if it's ever going to see print making it coherent as a finished product. I'm also uh, known to be a giant pen in the ass when it comes to book design because I tend to want to sketch or design my own book covers, which publishers aren't really receptive to. But those were the pitfalls I found putting out uh, an online serialized novella versus putting it out on print. And then we ended up turning it into a podcast, um, which is on our network at www.bacnpodcast.com and on iTunes under Black Falls. Now, the trick with this, doing it as a podcast, was, okay, I had it in a coherent print version. Now, should I put it all out? Um, looking at it, when putting it out as huge chunks or putting it out at one piece at a time? Because, you know, as a writer, I'm like, okay, well, each piece is about two to three pages. You know, takes, you know, a couple minutes to read. Well, when you have, you know... 50, 60 of those pieces in a book, that looks great. But when you do it in an audio fashion, those pieces are extremely short, about two minutes with um, intro music and outro music and our um, company tag at the end. So I had to sit and think about 
how I was going to put out Black Falls and at what rate I wanted it to be put out at. I ended up deciding doing about two episodes a week um, and then slowing down to one episode a week when it got to the longer pieces that were at the end. Because by the time I was done writing Black Falls, um, the online version, the ending I had planned out and had written such uh, significantly longer pieces. And when I did a lot of the bonus material, it was longer as well. Now, in terms of the bonus material, it would be when the circus left Black Falls. It would be um, the one about the guy who uh, kills waitresses based on if his sports team wins or not, and then the trial of the murderous Jim Ellis. Those I will end up talking about a little bit later um, in further episodes, especially the circus one, because that was actually dedicated to someone. Um, I held a fan suggestion um, contest, and the circus was one of them. And then someone asked for closure for this character, and I had never thought about... Here you go. Like, I'd never thought about the closure on that in terms of the novella, and then a fan came to me and said, whatever happened to him, you bring him up, you have him held captive by birds, he gets out, the birds release him, and then Daniel Allen, the writer in that in, in, in Black Falls, talks about it, he goes, I know how that ends, and he never reveals it. So... I had to go, oh, shit, well, there are more pieces in Black Falls than I originally thought. And that's okay. Every work can be added onto. You know, the story as a writer, and I'm sure almost, if you if you really are a writer, you have stories that burn to get out of you, you know they're never quite finished. Sometimes, you know, I've got a, 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 a published novel, and I thought I was done with that character. I thought, okay, Dante Kindness, I've told his story. And then literally two weeks after getting the, the proof copy, I went, shit, I know where his next story is. That's okay. I know that I've had some writer friends who feel bad because they feel like they didn't get a complete workout. Not a complete workout like you go to the gym, but obviously they didn't um, expunge the whole character out of them. They didn't exorcise it uh, to their... Uh, uh, to their um, to their wanting, but that's okay. Um, as I added more onto the next Dante novel, I added more to Black Falls, and I didn't feel bad about that because it was nice coming back to Black Falls and going, okay, I'm not constrained by that outline anymore. I'm writing a bunch of standalone pieces um, that I can just tack onto a bonus material chapter, or I can find to put, you know, the 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 sports fan one, um, I can put in Small Town Blues, um, or it could have ended up in, in um, the Jim Ellis stuff, because it's implied that it is Jim Ellis, even though I don't explicitly say that. Um, but having just recorded that for the podcast, I realized that it was a happy accident, that it was pretty much implied that was Jim Ellis. Or that someone else is killing people in West Forth Foundry, which is an even more terrifying thought, which I may explore in further Black Falls pieces. This podcast, um, episodes in, in the future... You're going to see more episodes, I'm sorry, um, readings from Black Falls. I'm going to do readings of poetry. I'm going to share excerpts from one of the novels I wrote, one that is still a work in progress, and I'll talk more about uh, coming up on NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, which I do. Uh, I've done, this will be the third year in a row I've done it. Um, there will also be excerpts from other novellas. There's one that's going to be significantly longer that I'm going to divide into two parts, which is... Um, the entirety of a novella I wrote years ago before I got to my first novel, and I'm going to explain the mechanics or 
um, the tools I use or how I failed or how I succeeded in this podcast, it's going to be much like my therapeutic podcast, Dam, in which it's kind of a production diary plus a real diary. But this is going to be aimed more towards the creative side of things and wanting to be a writer and how I've succeeded surviving the literary landscape, which is cutthroat as hell, versus, you know, where I failed. And hopefully you can learn from my mistakes and hopefully I can learn from my mistakes as well. So I hope you enjoyed the first couple bits of um, Black Falls that I just got done reading for you guys. And um, I hope that you come back. Uh, I, I'm going to have a lot of great guests um, from Tether by Letters and from independent publishing houses. And really, that's it. Um, this part of the show I don't really prepare for, so I'm sure you can tell. Um, but next week, uh, or in two weeks, rather, I'll be back. And we're going to tackle a, a bunch of more literary stuff. And you'll get to hear some more pieces um, that hopefully you like. Um, they may inspire you. So, you know, you keep writing, we'll keep reading. Oh, yeah. This has been a Blood Alcohol Content Network production. For more information, visit www.bacnpodcast.com. Your home for almost bacon and banjo!